Um, in the classic 1987 film, The Princess Bride, Princess Buttercup thought she'd lost her beloved Wesley to the dread pirate Roberts. Anybody remember the story? Okay. When Wesley showed up in the disguise of the very pirate who supposedly took Buttercup's true love away, she snaps at him, you mock my pain. And Wesley replies, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. <laughs> Friends, sometimes real life is stranger than fiction because in today's world, there is literally a multi-billion dollar industry or industries that the main goal is pain avoidance. How can we paint over or make uh, uh, other priorities out of life in a way that, that avoids what is difficult? And we live in a day and age where we have a woefully inadequate understanding of suffering. That marks our culture. And instead, we're told that we're entitled to comfort. We're entitled to ease. We're entitled to seek a vision of the good life. And yet, for a, a culture that is obsessed with pain avoidance, we are some of the most miserable and unhappy people on earth. You see, friends, we need a joy that does not come from circumstances. We need to dig deeper into the reality of pain and suffering and realize how each one of us struggles with difficulties and pain in different ways and discover God's purpose and the biblical perseverance that God calls us to and through the midst of those things and what that looks like. I've shared this before, but it's, it's something that has been so shaping for my life. Um, I read in, in a book I was reading uh, by a guy named Robert Clinton, who's a, a professor at a seminary. He, he said this that has been a kind of an anthem for me. He said, God will teach you one thing in perhaps a thousand ways. I am forming Christ in you. And this morning we're going to address the, we're, we're going to address um, Suffering and pain, but we're not going to necessarily talk about suffering in the broader picture of suffering across the world. I mean, we, we could spend a whole sermon or two on that alone. So we're going to save that for another time. Our goal this morning is we're going to see what the scriptures say specifically about Christian suffering, about the grander redemptive purposes that God has in ordaining the various things and difficulties and, and path that he has marked out for us. And I just want to stop as we get started here and acknowledge something. This topic is not something that's abstract or distant for you or for me. A sermon about suffering is something deeply personal. It's deeply personal for me and probably for you. See, I, I, in my life, I've watched people that I love, like my twin brother, Brad, for example, who uh, suffer the uh, effects of cancer and go through chemotherapy for 18 months and have an amputation of his leg and barely survive I've watched people I love pass away and endured the grief of that. I've endured the pain of major injuries to my body, uh, some of them my fault. Um, <laughs> I've suffered, maybe like you, failure and disappointment, relational conflict and strife, families or people that have hurt you. This. I wanted to begin by saying this message is for me and it's for you. It's for all of us who live in this broken world and we want to find real hope in Jesus. And the first thing we need to do is lament those realities and then we need to find a gospel-centered hope 
in the midst of suffering. And I want to just set the stage by reading what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5 about suffering and what it produces in us. This is what he says. You'll see it on the screen. He writes to these Christians in Rome. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. There's your gospel-centered foundation. And then he says, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Friends, there is hope. There's hope, dear brothers and sisters. Real hope because our Savior is the suffering servant. The man of sorrows. The one who endured suffering for us on the cross, making it possible that one day all suffering would end in the new heavens and new earth because of the resurrection life we have in him. And we can draw near to him in our difficulties. And this is my encouragement that we can know his peace and his presence amidst the darkness and pain. Many of you know, I've mentioned him, I think last week, uh, Charles Spurgeon. He's a great preacher, pastor. Um, this is what he said about this reality. He said, tears can clear the eye to see with an improved vision and perspective. Losses reveal the insufficiency of all the things around us that we cherish, enabling us to appreciate the all-sufficiency of Christ alone. This is what we're going to see this morning. So open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 12. So if you need a copy of the Bible, raise your hand, because I'd love to have you see the text for yourself and follow along with me. First uh, Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19, we're going to read today. And what we're going to do here is zoom in on a specific situation in the first century where Peter's writing to Christians scattered across the Roman, Roman provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And, and these, Roman, or these uh, uh, Christians scattered across uh, the Roman Empire were being persecuted intensely, and they were struggling to understand why they were undergoing such physical and emotional distress and pain and suffering. Now, this passage is specifically about persecution which is one kind of suffering. And yet, many of us suffer from illnesses, relational conflict, uh, emotional turmoil, watching people that we love go through difficult things. Much of it we don't choose. And this passage, although it speaks directly about persecution, which we're going to discover and see what, Paul, or what Peter writes to these Christians, I think it has some wider implications for how we endure suffering or things that are beyond our control. So it's kind of like a case study for what Christians do in the midst of, of suffering when suffering comes knocking on the door. So let's read. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. 
However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will become be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right, there's three parts to this passage that help us understand. Firstly, how we receive suffering. What's our attitude towards it as we, when it comes our way, that's verses 12 to 13. Then we're going to talk about how we understand suffering in the midst of it, 14 to 18. And then how we respond to suffering in verse 19. So uh, how we receive it, how we understand suffering, how we respond. So let's jump right in, all right? So how do we receive suffering? Now, Peter, as he's writing to these Christians, his primary goal is to change the perspective of these early believers. They evidently were surprised by the persecution they were encountering. They weren't expecting to suffer because of Jesus. And so he uses some specific words here that are hospitality words. Okay, in verse 12, look at it again with me. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The two key words there are surprised and strange, all right? They have the same root word in the original language in Greek. So they refer to the surprise that a host feels when a guest suddenly shows up at your door. Maybe you've had this experience. Okay, sometimes many of us would prefer some notice before somebody shows up at our house because we'd like to maybe clean up a little bit or mentally prepare for entertaining a guest. But when someone just pops in, you can feel thrown off or flustered or scrambled to try and be a good host and you're sort of pushing some things away and getting the kids' toys out of the way and cooking up some food or whatever it is. In that moment, you can be surprised that this strange thing that is happening to you, that's what Peter's explaining. This is the image that's in his mind, the picture that he's painting. And so what he's saying to these Christians, it's because he's using this sense of hospitality of receiving a guest. He's saying, don't be flustered when suffering comes knocking on your door. You might not be prepared. You might not know when it's coming. You may feel like suffering's an intruder in your life. But he says, let me help you change your perspective. Rejoice. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Rejoice when suffering comes to my door? What? How could I? Why would I rejoice at unwelcome pain? We need to, let me tell you a story that maybe help paint a picture for this. I mentioned Charles Spurgeon. He was a man who was full of life. He was this big personality, and, and he had a zeal for preaching God's word. And he was just this boisterous, fill-the-room kind of personality. And, and yet he was also a man, and many people don't know this, who struggled with depression. It all began at age 22. He and his wife, Susanna, were, they had twin babies at home. 
And Charles was the young pastor of a very large church in London. And one evening he was preaching to thousands of people at Surrey Garden Music Hall in London. And some pranksters yelled, fire, in the midst of this crowded auditorium. It resulted in a stampede to the exits. This is the 1800s, okay? They're literally lighting the room with candles. So everybody believed him when they said fire. And this stampede killed seven people and severely injured 28 others. Now Spurgeon would never be the same after this. His wife, Susanna, this is what she said about him. She said, my beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that his reason seemed to totter. And we sometimes feared he would never preach again, never work again. Now, some years later, in his 30s, as he's struggling with some of the guilt of this experience and seeing the pain that was caused by this, he now began to encounter physical pain. It became a constant part of his life. He, um, Charles Spurgeon suffered a kidney inflammation disease called Bright's disease. He had gout, he had rheumatism, he had neuritis, he had pain that literally kept him from standing and walking. It soon kept him from preaching and not only was he suffering this physical pain, he was overworking himself. He felt guilty about all the things that had happened and the limitations that he had. When he couldn't show up to work, he felt guilty about it even though he literally couldn't stand up. The negative impact on him and his family and his church it, it cut him to the core, and, and at the same time, his critics jumped on him because at this moment, they said that the suffering he was, going, he was undergoing was a judgment from God. Okay, that's not helpful. <laughs> and obviously theologically wrong. See, he was racked with guilt. He had physical pain and the scorn of his critics, and it affected him deeply. And at his darkest moment, this is what Charles Spurgeon said, the, the, Charles Spurgeon, the one we, 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 we quote, <laughs> and all these things, that his closeness to the Lord and his, his insights into scriptures, this is how he felt at this darkest time. He said, I become so perplexed that I sink in heart, and I dream that it would be better for me never to have been born than to have been called to bear this magnitude of pain upon my heart. But friends, some, God did something extraordinary in Spurgeon's life. And maybe in his story, you can see some threads that are tied in your own story. The Lord began to use this suffering that he endured to engender a new compassion for others and a new perspective on God's goodness and his sovereignty and his who God is. See, Spurgeon believed that even though trials may come through the world or the flesh or the devil, like there might be evil intent, there might be things that are completely outside of his control, things that you would look at and say, that's not, that's, that's an unwelcome pain and suffering. I didn't want that. That they are overruled and ordained by God who treats them as an important part of our new life in Christ. That's what Spurgeon said. He said that, it's quite clear in Scripture that through believers' suffering, God refines them like gold in a furnace, which is that passage in 1 Peter 1 that we read this morning. This is what Spurgeon said, and you'll see it on the screen here. 
He said, when the gold knows why and wherefore it is in the fire, it will thank the refiner for putting it into the crucible and will find a sweet satisfaction even in the flames. How do you come to a point of seeing your life through this kind of lens? This perspective, a kind of perspective of seeing how God is working in the midst of things that seem so dark and evil and painful only comes when we understand it through God's sanctifying work in us and his sovereignty in that. And this is where Peter turns next. So let's turn now. Okay, we talked about how do we receive suffering. We need to think about our attitude towards it. Now, how do we understand it? Verses 14 to 18. Now, as we go back to the text here, if you skim through 14, 15, and 16, you're going to see three if statements that further explain the paradigm shift Peter desires in in these early Christians. He says, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. If you suffer, it shouldn't be because of the evil choices you made. In other words, the suffering, let's hope, is not because of the consequences of your own sin. He said, instead, if you suffer as a Christian, or if if your heart is pure in these things, he says, do not be ashamed but praise God that you bear the name of Jesus. Now remember, they're being persecuted for their faith. And in these statements, Peter is reframing their specific insults and persecutions that they're encountering as a blessing from God that should result in praise. In other words, he's taking the circumstances that are outside of their control and recasting it as an opportunity to see God's blessings in Christ. You see, he offers a purpose statement here. After these three if statements in a row, there's a purpose in verse 17. For, and there's your result or your purpose here, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, he says. Why in the world would he talk about judgment at a moment like this where he's talking about persecution? Okay, we need to grasp, I, I want to uh, like unfold this a little bit because sometimes when we think of that word and we see that word judgment, we think about punishment almost in a criminal sense. And yes, that is what that word means and it, it means that often around scripture, but there's also a sense, a, a different dimension of how judgment is used in scripture of a sense of purifying, a sense of that, of that a purifying work of getting rid of all of the dross, the, the impurities and the things that, 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 that are, are, are impure in our lives. And so uh, the scriptures describe this in the Old Testament prophets foretold of a judgment that would begin with God's people and, would, and his own temple in passages like Ezekiel 9, Jeremiah 25, Malachi 3. And this theme of God God bringing to his people this purifying work to make them like himself and like, like Jesus in the, in the, in the church, that, that we would see his purifying work in the New Testament. In the first century, the New Testament writers picked up on this and described it about purifying us, the church. And this is the key. For those who are in Christ... Difficulty and suffering can be redeemed to be the very tools by which God forms Christ in you. I want you to just rest in that for a moment. Because sometimes we have, we can have a struggle to understand difficulty and the right 
perspective to see it through, that these are things that can be and, and God does redeem in our lives to be the ways that he forms Christ in us. But we need to, we need to be really clear about something here. And I want to make sure this is to speak to your heart and mine, <laughs> that this does not diminish or overlook the real pain and suffering that you've experienced. The fact that God uses these things to purify, to change, to transform us, it's not meant to be like a, a platitude or a nicety or a, something that's trite and quaint and something to just put on a little sign to post in your, you know, in your office or at your home or something like that. Rather, this reality is something that we need to stop for a moment and realize that the pain and suffering we experience is something we need to lament. We need to draw near to God in his purifying grace and become desperate for him. There's a book that I'd highly recommend to you by Kelly Capick, who he's a, uh, he's a, a seminary professor, but also a speaker and pastor. And he wrote a book called Embodied Hope, a theological meditation on pain and suffering. And it is so good. It's in the back there if you want to check it out or it's on your little handout. He talks about lament and hope in this book. And he says that lament is when we cry out to God, why? In the midst of suffering. He says this, he says, lament affirms God's shalom, his peace, even as it confesses our present trouble. He says, lament enables us to look for God's deliverance even as the sandstorm of life threatens and swirls. In other words, we can only find real hope in Jesus when we're desperate and we acknowledge our desperate need for him. That's what lament is about. Why, God? Why is this happening? I think of a friend of mine, a recent friend named Dustin. Um, Dustin's the new pastor at River of Life. It's another church in Hastings. He's been there for about seven months. Five months into his new role there, his wife... Um, had a stillbirth, and they lost their daughter, Paisley, just weeks before her due date. And as you can imagine, they're devastated, and as I talked with him afterwards, all I could do was just listen and lament. I could hear in his voice a deep pain and a sense of desperation for the Lord. And as I've talked with him over the last couple months, I'm really impressed by his abiding trust in Jesus, even as he's still experiencing the pain. I, I, I've said this, I'm not sure if I've said this to you guys in a sermon, but I often talk about it with my kids sometimes, that um, it's okay to have more than one emotion at the same time. <laughs> sometimes we think it's it's, like the layers of what we feel, that's okay. It's okay to have the pain and also the hope at the same time. That unwelcome suffering in Dustin's life is, I'm, I, I, I think I'm watching this purify his desire for God. Do a refining work in, in his hope. Do you, okay, you remember I just talked about the pain and despondency that Charles Spurgeon experienced? He grew desperate for Jesus. He once preached this. 
He said, in the old Pilgrim's Progress, y'all remember if you've ever read the old Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan? He said, I used to read it at my grandfather's house. I remember the picture, the etching of Hopeful, who's one of the characters, in the river holding Christian up. And if you're familiar with this, Christian is drowning and Hopeful jumps in to go save him. Hopeful has his arm round Christian and he lifts his hands and says, Fear not, brother, I feel the bottom. And Spurgeon says, this is what Jesus does in our trials. He puts his arm around us and he points up and he says, fear not, the water may be deep, but the bottom is good. And Christ's nearness to us in such times, he says, will instill in us a sweetness into the bitterness of suffering. He says, that is indeed the redemptive purpose of the darkness, that we share more and more in the joy of our dependence on the Lord and the joy that will be ours when we live in the world to come that is beyond all suffering and pain. It's this desperation that's our proper response to suffering. And it's where Peter ends with an encouragement to the believers who are encountering this unwelcome pain. So let's look at this last verse, friends, in verse 19. How do we respond? Okay, back to our case study here, or our, our example from this text. This is what Peter says in response in verse 19. He says, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. In other words, friends, when God chooses by his sovereign will that you should suffer, let it not draw you away from the Lord, but let it draw you nearer and nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. As you trust in the chief shepherd who has a good plan. It reminds me of Psalm 23. You're probably all familiar with Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, shall not be in want. Okay, verse 4, this is what verse 4 of that psalm says. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I don't know if you've ever studied what the rod and the staff are, but the rod is a club of discipline that you beat the sheep with, and the staff is something that you use to guide and direct their path. And they are both a comfort. They're not something to be shunned and despised. But instead, in this psalm, and I think it really, it's what Peter's describing as well, that we need God's discipline and his purifying grace and sanctifying work in our lives. And we need his guidance and wisdom and direction to go down the path he wants us to go. His rod and his staff, <laughs> do you notice the other part of that verse? You are with me. The rod and the staff are how you know that the shepherd is there. <laughs> his presence is made manifest in how he directs and guides 
as he refines us in his purifying fire, as he shapes us to be more like Christ. It's a sign that you're a child of God when he's shaping and forming you. That your heavenly father loves you so much that he wants, he'll, he'll allow you to go through something difficult so that you will be more mature. To grow in desperate dependence on him. Now, friends, the scriptures are full of encouragement about suffering and how we seek God and find comfort in him. Another, um, another book I'd recommend, because we're kind of doing that through our series here in case you want to go deeper on any one of these topics is a book by Paul David Tripp, who I mentioned last week. He's a pastor and counselor. It's called Suffering, Gospel Hope When Life Doesn't Make Sense. And he writes about his own battle with physical pain. He had to undergo, he had kidney failure, and he had months of multiple surgeries. And so he wrote this book in the midst of that. And this is what he says. He says, the Bible never minimizes the harsh experiences of life in this broken world. He says, scripture never looks down on the sufferer. Scripture never mocks our pain. Scripture never turns a deaf ear to our cries. And scripture never condemns us for our struggles. He says, the Bible presents to the sufferer a God who understands, a God who cares. A God who invites us to come to him for help and who promises one day to end all suffering. Jesus, in his incarnation, dear friends, he knows pain. He knows suffering and he can comfort us in ours. There's a, another example of this is the Puritan pastor and theologian John Owen. John Owen knew this well from experience. You see, um, he had, in the second half of his life in his ministry, he encountered tons of uh, incredible difficulty. First half of his life in ministry, it was just flourishing and it was wonderful. And there was this, this moment of shift and transition there where in the second half of his life, he was hampered in his ministry because the, the government was against him. He was being harassed and, and he encountered physical pain and he had all kinds of issues happen in his family. And he had to witness... The, the burial of all 11 of his children and his wife. After all of this, I mean, unbelievable loss, like Job kind of loss. This is the words that he wrote about his experience and where he, perspective he gained. You'll see it on the screen. He says, contemplating the glory of Christ will restore and compose the mind. It will lift the minds and hearts of believers above all the troubles of this life and is the sovereign antidote that will expel all the poison that is in them, which otherwise might perplex and enslave their souls. He says, let us assure ourselves... There is no better way for our healing and deliverance. Yea, no other way but this alone. Namely, obtaining a fresh view of the glory of Christ by faith. And a steady abiding therein. He says, constant contemplation of Christ and his glory, putting forth its transforming power unto the revival of all grace, is the only relief in this case. 
friends, this is biblical perseverance that you, you see engendered in, in a man like John Owen or, or others. It's to cling to Christ. It's to have your faith refined by the fire. And it's to stand firm in the grace of God as he forms Christ in you. And so maybe as a, almost a benediction or a challenge to you, let me use John Owen's words. May you, dear brothers and sisters, obtain a fresh view of the glory of Christ by faith and steadily abide therein. Let's pray. Lord, um, I know that across this room we've gone through different kinds of, of struggles, trials, suffering, and pain. And Lord, your word is so rich in helping us understand that, to receive it, to, to know how we respond and to walk with you. There's moments of lament where we don't even know what to do, the deepest, darkest valleys, the dark night of the soul. And there's the, the resurrection hope we have in the new heavens and new earth, and you speak to us everywhere in between. Lord, I pray for these dear brothers and sisters today that we would know a fresh vision by your spirit in our hearts that we would know a fresh vision of the glory of Christ that by faith by trust we would see that you are good even in the dark times that we would grow to persevere as you walk with us through those things form Christ in us Lord however you desire that we would accept the good and the bad, as Job said. We love you, Lord, and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.